Hi everyone, Nathan here. Just wanted to drop a brief note that this episode is a little unusual because the episode went a little bit long and we had to break it into multiple parts after the fact. So we're still talking about Star Wars A New Hope, but we're talking about the novelization and the original Marvel Comics adaptation in this episode. So without further ado, we go back to the program already in progress. I get that, that we got to kind of get through here with the, with the novel and the comics, but let's talk about the novel. And the interesting thing about the novel is that it actually came out before any of this. It came out in 1976, towards the end of the year. So people had a chance to read this book and know about the movie well before it actually came to theaters in May of uh, 1977. So I'm just going to start off here with one of the things that jumped right out at me as I was reading it that I thought was really interesting that I'd like to hear you guys' thoughts on, but also, you know, of course, bring out any other things that you noticed about the book that was different from the movie, which was, I love the fact that almost every time they refer to Leia, it's Senator Organa and not Princess Leia. That was one of the big things that jumped out at me, that it's like, again, I'm almost wondering if that was like a studio choice or something to like refer to her as princess, because clearly the script that Alan Dean Foster, the script that he went off of was referring to her as, and it, and it just gives her an importance that they remember, because I mean, it's just a brief line in the movie, like you could, you, because my wife, like when I mentioned, like she was part of the Imperial Senate and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, remember? I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission. And then Vader says, you are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away. She's like, oh, yeah. It's so easy to miss that one line that says that not only was Leia part of the rebellion, she actually had an official capacity within the Empire. She's like this secret agent type. And I like that. I like that they drew attention to it. I felt like Leia was even written even a little stronger, a little tougher than, than, than what we got on screen. Because like in the scene where Vader's caught her on the ship and he's yelling at her, she spits on him. <laughs> you know, yes. I love that. I was like, yeah, that's, that's really good. So I, I thought that Leia was written a little stronger in the novelization. I agree, but I, I also feel like out of the three versions we looked at for this, this is the, the version that is the most sort of male gazy mm. because every female character is pretty much described by how attractive they are except for aunt beru but she is specifically pointed out to be not that smart yeah and it's like the women in the book don't come out as great as they do in the movies and the the uh the comic book because that stuff's not well the comic book a little bit with you know, it's just like the book very specifically says every time that like Luke interacts with Leia or sees the video of Leia, he's like, boy, she's a hottie. And it's like, calm down, especially with what we know now. Is that but- <laughs> something that like that is the author authorial intent or is that just like Luke intent? Because it it's something that not to jump ahead, but it's something that you see also mm. in the comic as well, I think, with the way luke mm-hmm. looks at leia specifically not to detract from anything else you said because i absolutely agree but just that specific thing of luke being like man leia's really hot because oh my god guys how many times can he talk about how hot leia is how many well it's interesting also that the novel has it because she gives luke like a peck on the cheek in the movie right you know for luck you know it gives him a little peck on the cheek and in the novel, it's like full on lip locking, like, you know, and I'm like, mm-hmm. time and place here. I mean, you know, this is kind of crazy. And that does also come up in the comic, too, where it's like a full on kiss. Twice. 
twice. Yeah, twice. Yes. I know. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, it seems, it seems awkward and it seems like, again, like the writers want to like force them together as a couple, even though the narrative doesn't seem to be going that way. I wonder how much of it was in like the script descriptions, because there's definitely stuff that like shows up in both the comic and the novel that don't show up in the movie because it's part of the description, but they're like almost word for word the same. So it has to be part of the description. Right. Well, I wonder if the script might have just said she kisses Luke and they're assuming mm-hmm. full on lip lock when, in fact, it's just a peck on the cheek when the actual movie happens. Or the other thing I wondered is if when they were writing the comic, they referenced the novel because the comic mm-hmm. had to be pretty, even though the comic came out like where like, oh, the first two issues came out before the movie and the other four came out after the movie was released. They had to prepare all that ahead of time. Like right. they weren't like making it after the movie was released. So they might have referenced the novel for things, too. I think both of them were working off of the original screenplay. And in because mm-hmm. in both the novel and in the comic, they kiss twice. It's not just one kiss, it's mm-hmm. two kisses. And it, it really seems like the original screenplay, to me, and this is a personal opinion, maybe pushed the nebulous nature of will they, won't they, more than when they actually got on set and started filming. There was obviously more chemistry between Han and Leia than there was with Luke. So I don't know if that influenced the decisions of kind of the, you know, of Lucas and everyone on set that was like, oh, this thing doesn't really work, but this over here kind of does. Yeah, because I mean, both the novel and the comic have Han being kind of like thinking after he like is sort of ribbing Luke about, hey, maybe the princess and I can get together. As sort of being like, was that a joke or wasn't it? Whereas in the movie, I never have any question that Han is serious. Like, he's ribbing Luke, but he's also like, oh yeah, you know, like me and her, we're going to get together. So I found that interesting. Another thing that I thought was interesting, I wondered how many of you, when you read the prologue to the novel, which I think was like the one bit that Lucas actually did write, was that sort of prologue a thing? Because the way that it characterizes the Empire's rise is so completely different from what we see. Because it's like, yeah, Palpatine was just some figurehead that they put in place. That really it's these other guys, like like the Tarkins and his buddies, that kind of created the Emperor as a figurehead that is just sort of there. And he's just sort of removed from the people. He's not listening to the people because they've got him sort of sequestered somewhere or whatever. They actually say soon he was controlled by the very assistants and bootlickers he had appointed to high office. Yeah, and, and that's just so interesting because that's definitely like even with the movies that came out just a few years later, it definitely didn't go that way. Well, in the novels, Vader is very dismissive, of, or at least in this novel, Vader is mm. very dismissive of the Emperor in his own thoughts because, you know, we get to hear Vader's thoughts. Yeah, and so I just found that very interesting because it's like, again, even here, like when we talk about like continuity and canon and stuff, like this is the first piece of Star Wars media, even before the movie, and we're already like taking something and being like, nah, you know, <laughs> like that's not going to be like, you know, what we, because even in the movie, When we get to where the movie comes out, there's a line that Tarkin says about once the Death Star is operational, nobody will be able to resist the Emperor or something like that. So it's like Tarkin's clearly deferring to the Emperor. It isn't like, no, I'm really the one in charge and he's just some shill. He's referring to the Emperor as the person that he's ultimately answering to. Mm -hmm. 
That all, it made me really curious about what George's ideas for the prequels and like the history were at this point, because I wrote down in my notes, like he mentioned the Sith and the Republic. So obviously he had some of these ideas, but they changed drastically over time. So I would have loved to like travel back in time, sit down with George Lucas in 1977, because I don't know if you could get a straight answer today of what exactly he envisioned as the history and future of his movies, because I feel like it's something that changed as he developed the movies for sure yeah if you ever even look at some of the artwork that they generated like how much things changed over time because at one point luke was a woman it was going to be a female protagonist character at one point it was going to be vertically challenged people like willow like ended up being it was going to be two main protagonists a a boy sister twin combo and so it's like all these ideas that later came up and other things that he did or would come up and Oh, right, right, exactly. Starkiller instead of Skywalker. Like, there's so many different things that he was playing around with that, yeah, I mean, like, the idea that he actually envisioned the, the, the series as all nine episodes as they are is a myth. I mean, like, he did not. He just had a bunch of ideas he was playing with and kind of had sort of, like, ideas of maybe where it came from and what where it was going. Yeah, but can I mention how dead on certain things were? Like, one of my favorite things, and this is why I have my book open to this part, was the description of Grand, of Grand Moff Tarkin. Uh, it was a thin, hatchet-faced man with hair and form borrowed from an old broom and the expression <laughs> of a quiescent piranha. And that is Peter Cushing to a T. Yeah. Like, you look at him, you're like, yeah, no, I, I see that. That is fantastic. Well, that's the thing. Like, like so, so that's not, like the presentation of the novel. Like, it's interesting because Alan Dean Foster had some really great lines like that one. And then there was things, like, where he wanted to speak, like, droid lingo that was just painful. And I'm an engineer, and I understood what he was getting at with some of this stuff. But there are lines like, to 3PO's ears, R2's words were as clear and pure as direct current. Who's writing that? I mean, God, Foster. I mean, this is 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 bad. A lot. (laughs) It was bad. Yeah, I'm glad that they skipped over a lot of stuff or condensed it because... Part of the original novel felt like I was trying to get through some, like, science fantasy Charles Dickens with all the description in the world that I don't need. Mm -hmm. One of the things I want to point out is that, one, Star Wars, parentheses, 1977, slash The Adventures of Luke Skywalker, which is the actual title of this novel, makes ducks canon in Star Wars? Like, because there's that line about, like, ducks (laughs) in it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a second. And like, Luke is like, what is a duck? And at the time you're like, what? And then you're like, oh, wait, this is a desert planet. It makes perfect sense. Carry on. But it's such a weird thing to put in the middle of this novel. What? What are you doing? I loved it. It's fine. <laughs> I almost wondered if the long time ago in a galaxy far, far away hadn't been decided yet when they were writing the novelization and that they were thinking that maybe this is future humans from Earth in this galaxy and like because yeah there are references there are a few times in the novel where i was like he's writing this as if these are earth humans with the knowledge of what our world is like and i wondered if that was like a later addition to the movie was the long time ago in a galaxy far far away intro so yeah uh that was a weird one yeah in the book it says another galaxy another time and i think in the comic book i don't have it open in front of me it even says like something about it could be in the future I believe. It says it could be in the future, it could be in the past, who knows, basically, is kind of like how the, the comic starts out. 
The other thing about presentation that really shocked me, I mean, you talked about the depiction of women, the racism against Jawas, like, and this is <laughs> authorial, right? This is, this is from the narrative yeah. standpoint. It's not, it's not like a character trait of, oh, okay, where we're describing how these people feel about Jawas. It refers to Jawas as filthy, subhuman. The, like the terms is, I was just reading this going, oh my God, this is coming from the, the, the narrative standpoint of, of, you know, like, this is just how it right. is. And I'm just like, this is really problematic. <laughs> that kind of bothered me. You know? It'd be different if it was a character saying something. Droids like aren't that. allowed no, in here, how, that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. The, the people in Tatooine are racist against, ja- you know, like the humans living on Tatooine. But can we talk about droids not being allowed in here? Because Luke Skywalker says droid rights. And I feel like we should point that out right there in the novelization. It's a thing that happened. Mm. And I'm sorry if we are going to go through this podcast with me. We're going to talk about droid rights at some point. But Luke Skywalker, 1976, because <laughs> this came out in 1976, says droid rights. That's where we are. It's fine. I'm sorry, guys. There are going to be little things like this. <laughs> I would love to know if that was part of the original script or if that's Foster, like, adding that in. Because, like, it'd be interesting if that's something, like, the studio removed from the script and, like, it didn't get in the movie. Or if... I want to know who was being subversive, if it was Lucas or Foster, basically. Yeah. I love it. I I did like that, too. (laughs) I did notice, again, because I am the world's foremost Wedge fan that the captain of the ship in the novel is not Captain Antilles, because even though I know they're not referring to Wedge, I always notice, because the captain in the movie has the same last name as Wedge, he's Captain Colton. So, just a, just a note, there's nothing really important there, other than I wanted to reference Wedge again. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice, like, I mean, it's obvious that a lot of this is padded out so that it can be novel length, um, which means including all the deleted scenes, the thing that kind of surprised me is that they completely cut out Obi-Wan's reaction to the yeah. planet being destroyed. That's gone entirely from the novelization. That kind of blew my mind because like, that's a very distinct part from the mm-hmm. movie for me. It's like his like, oh, I felt a bunch of people just die. And like, that's just not even in the book at all. And I kind of, I was wondering, was it not in the script? It's in mm-hmm. the comic. But not in the 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 book, so I thought that was that was odd, considering how much everything was in it. The thing I noticed about the novel about Obi Wan, in addition to that, was that he spoke to Chewbacca in Wookie, and I wish they had recorded that. I want Alec Guinness, you know, see that. I was like, oh man, that's cool. But again, it's like it's like a neat character thing too that Obi Wan is so cosmopolitan that he knows how to speak to Chewbacca in his own language, and I would have like appreciated that if they had had that as part of it. Well, he does do the big monster roar in his his introduction still, but he gets to make right. some noises. <laughs> <laughs> Juliet, were you trying to say something earlier? No, no, I was making hand gestures uh, to Corey, and then because I had the muted the Zoom, but I can't exactly just really quickly mute the audacity. So I was like, "You don't need to hear random conversations when whoever is editing it, this gets to edit it." <laughs> but I was also looking up. I was thinking about that whole ridiculous scene in with Luke, with Cammy and Fixer mm-hmm. and everything else. I am so glad that got left out. Now, 
I, I look forward to referencing it later when we discuss other books because those character mm-hmm. names do come up. But the fact that he's called Wormy, where did he get this nickname? How did he get the nickname Wormy? And dear Lord, Cammy apparently is just, I don't know, she's acting like some sort of dancing girl the way she's described. You would have thought she would belong to Java's palace with stretching sinuously, her clothing tugging and intriguing. Uh, what? Oh, oh, it's just wormy. <laughs> I watched the, the deleted scene of that on YouTube and it's like, she just like sits up and stretches a little. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> oh, it's so ridiculous. But I think this is a good example of something that works in a, not that particular description, but I mean the fact that we get this background stuff with Luke that worked in a novel that I don't think worked mm-hmm. in the movie. Because like I said, if they had had all that stuff in the movie, it would have so bogged down the front of the movie. Yeah, it would have introduced Luke earlier, but we would have had all this stuff that we didn't really need. But I think it is good to get a little more of the background. Because like when I was a kid watching A New Hope, I never realized that the guy Luke was flying with was his buddy Biggs from Tatooine. Yeah, there's the one time when he says, like, when Biggs left, you know, like, to his uncle. But I never connected that with the guy flying in the X-Wing next to him. Because, you know, in the special edition, they added in some of the scenes on Yavin where you find Luke where they talk. And so you realize it's the same guy. But having that background, I think, does add a little something. But again, it, it works in a novel. I don't think it works in a, in a movie. It bogged down the novel. Okay. That's, that whole scene just bogged it down. Just talk about Biggs, you know, in the, just talk about him in the beginning. Mm. And then we can have the scenes with him on Yavin. That felt like more natural. The whole scene in the beginning just, it felt out of place in the novel itself. It just really did. Yeah, I really like the added additions in the novel like I agree that it wouldn't have worked in a film but if you're doing a novelization of something especially a film if you want someone to read both the book that's written about a movie you want to add extra things in it to give them a reason to read it and for me one of the kind of few reasons to read the novelization is actually these this backstory on Luke because I think it brings Luke's like quote-unquote whininess because I think that that's the biggest complaint people have with a new hope Luke is that he's whiny it really puts these things into perspective it puts into his relationships with the people that are on the planet they kind of talk down to him they treat him like he's younger than them even if he isn't and oh it's just wormy and then you have Biggs who he obviously has been friends with because he calls him his best friend multiple times in both the book and the comic and even in the scenes you get in the film you don't quite get that level between them but it really puts Luke into better perspective. And this background, I think, helps build him as a character better, especially when we're not getting the visuals for what he's doing. I don't know. I, I think it adds to Luke. I really like it. But I also understand that like it's really weird to talk about the level of glistening skin Cammy has while she's sitting on her mechanic boyfriend's lap. I agree with both of those things at the same time. But that, yeah. Yeah, they also cut out the woman that Han had wiggling on his lap in the beginning, which they actually did also film that as an alternate take, that thankfully they cut that from the movie version, but there was a woman with Han originally that they that they cut out there. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the the, the, the depiction of women, it, it is awful, but yeah, I, I liked having, like, the, I, the other thing that I found interesting, because I always thought when Luke was talking about going to the Academy, 
that he was talking about like going and becoming like a TIE fighter pilot or something. I didn't realize that there's like a generic academy that you could go to to like do like civilian ships. Because that's what's clear in the novel is like Biggs is talking about doing some sort of like freight hauler or something. That that's what he's that he was talking about joining up. And then he's like, but Luke, secretly I'm going to join the rebellion. This is just like an excuse. And so, you know, I liked that nuance that I didn't get even from the special editions because I always assumed that they were talking about, like, going to the Imperial Academy, you know? And I'm oh, like, same. Man. Then you're like, wow, you changed the rebellion real quick there. So. Right. <laughs> so that was context that I think was necessary to understanding that reference. Because, yeah, I thought, like, oh, Luke just wants an adventure either way. Like, I'll join the Empire. Oh, the rebellion? I'll join them, too. I just want an adventure. I just want to get off this rock. <laughs> Makes him seem a little uh, vacillating. So did you guys did you guys interpret the academy conversation not being the Imperial Academy? Yeah, didn't Big say that he wasn't going to get con he wasn't going to get conscripted or he wasn't going to move on to the Imperial Academy after or the Imperial Navy after going to the academy? Right. Yeah. So Biggs was saying he was going to be like on some sort of freighter after the academy, and he said, and besides, if I stayed on this job, I'd probably end up getting conscripted into the Imperial Navy. And so conscription to the Imperial Navy is separate from the academy. Sometimes the problem with reading too many legends books is that you have too much context that you fill in things places so for me i was like yes imperial academy all of this makes sense and again that's because i have so many things so going back and interpreting this it makes me reinterpret that line as well because my initial my initial interpretation was that like yes imperial academy and yes you don't want to go get inscripted into the the war that's about to happen between like you know with the empire but um yeah, I get I get what you are saying. Yeah. And I think the comic has the same line. I just thought it was like a local academy thing and not like a big part of the big war stuff. I just assumed it was just a, a smaller deal and not really tied in with any of this stuff. But yeah, there's all kinds of stuff in the presentation that's messed up. Like Porkins is called Piggy. It's like, he already has the name Porkins, okay? That's his nickname Yikes. that they gave him. And you him. give him a nickname, Piggy? Piggy and Wormy. Like, yeah, I mean, that's just like being mean on top of the fact that, you know, he has a horrible actual name. You just were mean to him and call him Piggy. <laughs> So, yeah, I just, yeah. But, and the other thing that I thought was interesting that actually comes up later, even comes up in the sequel trilogy, is the idea that you can't track a ship in hyperspace. It's yeah. said in the novelization that, that, that that's impossible. So I thought that that was interesting as something that carried forward even into the post-Disney acquisition is this idea that you can't track a ship through hyperspace. So, yeah, does anyone else have anything else that they wanted to mention from the novelization? Nope, I'm waiting until we get to the graphic novel because I got notes on that too. Well, I think the only thing we should kind of talk about a little bit is the Journal of the Wills. Mm. And it being mentioned here as being part of... It's it's an odd thing to kind of have open this novel when you don't see it for, for a while. But that's, again, thing. is this idea that you have this journal where people are talking about... Because it almost, in this in, in this particular context, feels very like dune-esque not Mm -hmm. to reference another like science fiction classic is that you have people writing about events that are happening but writing about it from the future and Mm. i think it's an interesting thing that this novel opens with that in the context of the novels and the context of like star wars lore it was something that lucas wanted to explore more 
Yeah. And it got things so very wrong. <laughs> Just in those two pages that well, yes. we get. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But I, I just think it's really interesting that like the, the Journal of the Wills shows up here. Mm. And I think it's important to note on as we move through Star Wars canon that you do see it here. Yeah, no, I, I'm being a little flippant here, but yes, no, I, I agree with you because yes, yeah. I know that that becomes important <laughs> later. But again, yeah, to somebody just reading this, even if they had seen the movie and then walked, ran out and got the novel, like that's a meaningless term, like the Journal of the Will. So yeah, you're right. It's it's interesting that that was what Lucas wanted to sort of coach it in was this sort of this is history that we're reading about from some future time, and we never see it again right. for a long time. <laughs> All right, so, I mean, is it worth somebody looking at the novelization now? They've, if they've seen the movie, if they've seen the parentheses 1977 close parentheses version of the movie, <laughs> is it worth them checking out the novelization? So let's start with you on this one, Corey. So I think that, like, I stand by that if you are, if, if you're interested in Star Wars as more than just the films, this is a really fun place to start because it gives you more context on Luke. And I have several friends that are like, oh, Luke Skywalker, ride or die. And if you are Luke Skywalker, ride or die, you have to read this book because it does give you that really important historical kind of like context on who he is as a character and where he came from. But like otherwise, like, I don't know. It doesn't add a whole lot to the story besides that. Okay, Ashley. I would say that for me, this the novel definitely was missing some of the magic of the movie. It felt dated in ways that the movie did not. If you're a completionist and you're interested as a Star Wars fan in the history, I think it's definitely worth reading for historical con, uh, context. But I ended up enjoying the comic a lot more as a storytelling medium. So I tend to maybe point people more towards that than the novelization. Okay, Juliet. I have to agree. I, I think that if you are a Star Wars fan and you just really want to delve more into it and s kind of see where it came from originally, it's a great read. Otherwise, I don't think it adds anything. I feel like it almost takes some stuff away from it. So, eh, completionist, go for it. Otherwise, you can live without it happily. Joe? Uh, yeah, there's a few bits here and there there in the book that are like, oh, that's a nice bit of prose or, or whatever. And it's interesting seeing the deleted uh, material, but the deleted scenes are available to watch. So I would say just watch. You can, like, they're on YouTube. Just look them up. Um, I would rather do that than read an entire book of stuff that's you're you can already get from the movie. Uh, and also the movie does it better. I feel like uh, it's not so, you know, sexist. So... I, I don't think you have to read the book. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm the same. I mean, in general, I'm not someone who picks up a lot of movie novelizations just because when the movie comes first, that's the version I want to see. And I do believe that this does add some things that I think are, like I said, like the, the main thing to me was the context of what Luke was planning to do originally leaving Tatooine was I always had this idea that it's like, man, it's a good thing all this stuff happened. Or Luke would have joined the Empire and the Rebellion would have been crushed, right? And so I, that was always this idea that I had in my head. 
But yeah, now that I've read like the way that it's presented in the novel, I'm like, oh, okay. Like I was completely wrong about that. That's the only thing that really like changed my view of something on Star Wars. There's some other good information about the background and why Luke wanted to get out of Tatooine and, and you know, some of that that I think was interesting. I definitely liked the stronger presentation of Leia in a lot of ways, and I wish that the movie had allowed some of those things and referred to her more as Senator. They still point out that she is a princess of the Royal House of Alderaan, but there's like maybe one or two times in the book they mention that, and every other time it's Senator Organa, which I think gives her more respect as a character, and I liked that, and I liked the fact that people did give her that respect. And so, you know, there, there are some good things about the presentation, but then there's some really bad things. Like I said, the stuff with the droids is just awkward. There's the racism with the Jawas. There's the horrible presentation of women and depictions of women in that. And some of the turns of phrase are just awkward, like the way that he says things. There are others that are, that are really cool lines, but yeah, I mean, I think even the book doesn't feel that polished as a novel. And having read a lot of the books that were written in the 90s and stuff, it doesn't feel as well written as those are. And so, yeah, I say it's definitely something that you can skip. But yeah, so let's talk about the comic. And, and so this is kind of interesting that in the, at least in the Marvel Unlimited version, which is the version that I read, the reprint that I read, they actually included the editorial page at the end of the first issue. I don't know if everybody else's version had that, that actually like explained like some context that Roy Thomas, the writer, and if people who don't know who Roy Thomas is, he was basically Stan Lee's protege. He was the guy that took over all of Stan's comics when he would stop writing Thor or whatever. Like, Roy was the next guy who wrote Thor, and he was the next guy who wrote Fantastic Four and Avengers and all of those. And so he actually had, you know, he had actually met George Lucas because he was a fan of his movies. And George knew Roy from some things, you know, like Roy had some artwork that he wanted to look at. And so they had already had some conversations. And so George was like, I want Marvel to do the adaptation and I want Roy to write it. And so that's how Marvel got the license. So they, they did a six issue series. The story that I read reading, reading the history of Marvel uh, last year was that basically from the point of view of the writers at the time, Marvel was close to bankruptcy and the Star Wars limited series like pulled them out of it. Wow. It was that popular. They printed it like four or five to like they did their normal print run. It sold out. They reprinted it again. It sold out. They did like a uh, omnibus like, you know, they do like three like they reprinted like the three issues in like sort of a book and then the next three issues in a book and those sold out. And so it was like they re they kept reissuing it and it kept because in those days, once you'd seen the movie and you didn't have home video. Either the novelization or the comics was the only way you were going to be able to re-experience Star Wars. So I think a lot of kids who had seen Star Wars and were excited about it were like, yeah, I want to go out and buy those comics so that I can read through the comics and remember the movie. So yeah, I mean, thoughts on the comic. Let's start with uh, you this time, Juliet. What were some thoughts you had about the comic? I mean, if you're going to... If you want to read some background, go with the comic instead of, instead of the book. It, it covers the highlights of the book without dragging in many places, and it still hits the high points of the movie. There are some things about it that kind of surprise me. O Obi-Wan's death panel is nightmare-inducing. Wow, I like to took a photo of it on my phone because Obi-Wan doesn't just disappear cleanly. He's got like this... You can't see this. Everybody else can see this, unfortunately, but you, our listeners can't, but his face looks like something out of like a... It looks like from Raiders of the Lost Ark when they open the Ark. Mm -hmm. Melting Nazi face is what it looks like. 
There are some great descriptions, like when Luke is shooting down uh, onto the Death Star and he gets caught in the flames at first, and mm. the panel's like, he's seen the flames of hell. And I'm like, wow, that movie didn't convey that to me, so that was kind of fun. Mm. <laughs> and um, there was one panel that, that surprised me, and it was Blue Leader talking to Luke. I f- knew your father. Mm-hmm. I flew with him. I'm like, how many people knew Anakin Skywalker and didn't didn't tell anybody about it? This is great. Yeah. But it just it was it's interesting. It has things in it to me that weren't conveyed well as well in the book. I think that the comic is the more enjoyable one. It's still awkward because boy, uh, in the book it says that Leia gives at the second kiss to Luke is a quick embarrassed, almost embarrassed kiss. Mm-hmm. In the comic, oh no, it's full on with tongue. You can tell it is. The panel is uncomfortable. I guess if we're reading it for the first time, not knowing what happens, it's okay. Okay, no, no, it's still uncomfortable to look at. Yeah, because she's just the like, they're thing. talking about, it's the scene in the movie when they're talking about Han not deciding to go with them on the battle on the Death Star. And, you know, she's telling him about how Han has to choose his own path and whatever. And then she just decides that, oh, come here, big boy. You know, it's just <laughs> it's like, what? so bad. <laughs> Yeah. But overall, it was more enjoyable. Although the cover of one of... Because the, the graphic novel I had had the covers mm-hmm. in there was completely misleading on one of them because it had Luke and Vader giving getting into a lightsaber battle. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where was this in my movie? Ah, yes. Misleading comic covers. This is this is a thing for all comic readers know about. <laughs> There's also the one where it's like... They're attacking the base as well. That d- oh, that and there's happen. one that has a caption that says, will Luke save the galaxy or destroy? I think that's the first issue. It says, will Luke save the galaxy or destroy? And I'm like, when was this ever an option? Because I <laughs> don't think that's part of the story anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, one of the things that I noticed was that, yeah, it seemed to be, I mean, it was a lot more in line with the movie version. I think because it came out closer to the movie, they might've gotten more, I have an idea of some of the things that were changing, but there were still a lot of things that were in the book version that made it into the comic. You know, we do get that background. You know, we get a few scenes with Luke and Biggs. We get a few panels there on Tatooine. But part of the problem I felt was like, I felt like even with six issues, they had to cram so much into those six issues that it got really wordy for a comic book. There are some areas where it's like, box 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 you know all through the panels it's just like text boxes everywhere and i'm like man this doesn't feel like a comic because you have to read so much text in here but you can't convey the story otherwise was it just me or it did luke start out looking like he-man prince adam like and then halfway through the like by by issue like three he starts looking more like Luke Mark Hamill. Oh, well, they definitely, you could tell the art, like, was correcting as they started seeing pictures and more. Like, Darth Vader doesn't look, like, the first issue, Darth Vader does not look quite right either. And then, like, you, like again, by the midpoint, they've got Darth Vader looking the way he looks in the movie. But, yeah, I think they, because they were going by the original, like, sketch artwork and whatever they could get, like, the production stuff. And so some of that stuff was written or uh, drawn fairly early on. Uh, so that that was what they were basing it on. But I will say that Luke Skywalker's V-neck got a lot more V as each issue progressed. I was charting it as we were going, and I was like, all right, that's a pretty normal V. And then, like, literally every every single issue, it got a little lower and got a little lower. And by the time that he was, like, 
about to get in the X-Wing before he was in, like, the, the pilot uniform. Man, it was, like, down to his navel almost. And I'm <laughs> like, are we – is this, like, an episode of, like, Conan or something? Like, what are you doing, guys? What is happening? And he got a lot more beefcake as the – issues went on because he started his farm boy fairly normal physique right they just really leaned into the dorito like more and more and kept adding like let's put like some extra like pecs in there i feel like he had two two sets of pecs and like 10 abs and i was like where is this where does that go? I yeah. don't understand. Well, now we see where Nathan got his inspiration for the recap <laughs> of Star Wars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, com- the, the novel's the male gaze, the comics <laughs> is the female gaze. Right? <laughs> well, it is interesting. And one of the things that I got out of it is how, mu- how important an inker is. Because, you know, they talked in that editorial page at the end of the first issue that they were bringing in this inker for the second issue that, that carried on through the rest of it. And that first issue, I felt like the art was not very good at all. You know, same same artist throughout all of them, Howard Chaikin. And I felt like there were, like, way too many lines in some places. It had this almost, like, dirty look. And I get that it's Tatooine and everything, but I mean, like, dirty in the way, like, the art looks. Like, it didn't look, like, correct. Like, it looked like it was, like, more sketchy and less, like, refined, just the art style. And then once that inker comes in issue two... I'm like, wow, that improved things a whole lot. Like, you know, I felt like, you know, it, it got a lot cleaner and in its presentation. And so that's just from a purely artistic standpoint. I felt like, you know, that that, that was a, a good move bringing him in. I, and I, I meant to have the name of the person, but I don't actually have the issues in front of me like I intended. <laughs> Yeah, any other thought? I mean, because the thing that I found with the comic, I found it harder to write notes for the comic just because a lot of it was like, well, this is kind of like a synthesis between the movie and the novel. So there weren't any real surprises in there or things that were other than Luke could possibly destroy the galaxy, which kind of like surprised me. There's there's two things that I wanted to mention. One was I really liked the, the there there's a lot of like, condensing and there's one that i was particularly like that's a real good con- condensing of the material uh is when r2d2 and c3po split up after they first land on the planet and like they combine the split up with r2 being mm-hmm. taken away by uh, the jawas they combine those two scenes together in a way that i thought was like that's actually really neat and clever and works i thought that was really good the other thing is this version of jabba the hut is 100% my headcanon for how he actually looks. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, what is he, like, green with, like, a big mustache? Yeah, he's he's definitely looks more like a person. (laughs) Right, yeah, like, he he looks like he's a biped with, like, a big mustache, and he's got a green skin. Not not very, uh, not not slug-like at all. It's his early, like, larval form. Yeah, if you've seen the original scenes that they filmed with the Jabba stand-in before they added the thing from the re-release, I feel like it's a little more in line with what they had filmed for mm-hmm. that character, which is, I know, it's it's a deleted scene. I don't know if anyone has seen it. But yes. yeah, he's a, a, a bipedal, kind of heavyset guy that I think they were probably taking more inspiration from with this interpretation. Except... You know, a little different, of course, but it felt more in line with that. 
Oh, I apologize. I did. I did actually have a note on that inker. It's Steve Lealoha. So Steve Lealoha, if you listen to this podcast, I'm sorry for le- leaving your name off before. He does the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy comic books as well. Oh, really? Interesting. So there were a couple other notes that I had. Leia says her dad is Bale Antilles. So another Wedge reference in there, but that was weird because they definitely say that she's Leia Organa. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was a little confused why, why they got that wrong. They keep saying Han is a pirate, which is not implied at all by either the novel or the, the movie. He definitely says smuggler, which is different. Because piracy you know, implies that he's actually attacking people and taking things from them. Which, you know, definitely, like, puts his character in a very different light if he's a pirate. And I didn't like the fact that they say, like, when the he and Luke are fighting the TIE Fighters when they're escaping from the Death Star, that Han learns that even pirates can pray. Because that ruins the whole thing about hokey religions and everything that he says in the, in the other thing. That I'm like, no, no, that's the, that, no, don't do that. So I didn't like, you know, you know, Roy Thomas is trying to embellish scenes that are just actiony and and put some words in there, but that was, I think, a poor choice in in that point. So I think one of the things that I had a couple notes on was number one, both the both the novelization and the comic lean more heavily into mysticism and magic for mm-hmm. the Force in the way that they describe it, and in in the way that like for this particular movie and this this piece of media there's a lot of emphasis on how magical it is they call vader a sorcerer they -hmm. call um a wizard the term wizards and sorcerers and these things are used kind of liberally across all three of these original pieces of media and i thought that was really interesting because it's not something you see moving forward but also i think as a note you you were talking about how this was six issues of comic crammed with a whole lot of text and I mean, I don't know how many people have read some like late 70s, early 80s comics, but like y'all ever read any Chris Claremont comics? Because that's all it is. It is thought bubble, thought bubble, context, paragraphs of everything. And you were like, there is some art in here. I can see it. But it, it, <laughs> so this to me felt very much like a late 70s comic book, specifically like a late 70s Marvel comic book, which isn't a complaint. It's just like, this is how comics read in that era. So it was very kind of like, it was a very good example of what you would have read as a comic reader during that time, which again, to me, I have the very opposite reaction that I think everyone else had to be like, I would read this before I read the novelization. And I was just like, I would definitely have read the novel before I read this. <laughs> because I, I've i not always been a fan of that style. You and I are simpatico again, Corey. I actually got more out of the novelization than I did out of the comic. And funny enough, I mean, I have read 70s comics that I know exactly what you're talking about. But to me, being so familiar with the yeah. story... Like, see, that's different. When I'm usually reading a 70s comic, it's something I haven't read before. So it's more engaging to me because of that. This, because they're just telling me things I already knew, I found it tedious to have all that text there on top of the art. So it's a different experience than when I normally read a 70s comic. You're not wrong. It it still could be tedious in some of those 70s comics, but it was just a very popular style Mm -hmm. of the time is a lot of telling background and 
a lot of excessive kind of writing as opposed to letting the art do a lot of the heavy lifting. And this is not, again, not to besmirch any 70s comic writer or artist of the era. This is just an art style thing that has kind of changed over time. Right. I think it actively ruins the 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 joke where Han runs away from the stormtroopers. Mm. Like he's just like telling Chewbacca <laughs> yeah. the joke. It's <laughs> very awkward. <laughs> it's funny, Chewie, because I was running away from running towards them. Now I'm running away from them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that in the comic. Yeah, he definitely feels the need to explain why things are happening in a way that was interesting in the novelization. I didn't bring it out. But it was weird how in some cases, even though he's coming from it from a from a from an omniscient air narrator point of view, in some scenes he's just like acts like I have no idea what's going on, so I'm just gonna describe like when he talks about them playing the game, like when R2 and Chewie are playing that like round chess game, like he's just like, there was a board with these holographic images and they were moving across the board, and I'm like Really? You're not going to say, like, this game was this, and they were, like, and R2 was winning? Like, it's like he describes it as if, I got no idea what this is, but this is what it is, like, what you see. And it's like, but in the comic, it's like, he's trying to explain everything that happens, you know, like, sort of, like, uh, from that omniscient author point of view. I'm so sorry that I have to be the most pedantic person in the world. It's like, Dejaric is the is the chess and i'm so sorry i'm sorry that i'm like this but i feel like everyone no, everyone at home needs that information too i'm so sorry it took Again. all of my effort not to mention jizz earlier so. <laughs> <laughs> i knew that it had i knew that oh. they had to be named somewhere but i had forgotten what it was you know i'm I'm so sorry. This is who I am, and I feel like I'm going to apologize for a lot of these things moving forward. But here we are. Okay. That's space jazz, though, Joe. You're talking about space jazz. Sure, sure, sure. All right, let's move along here. All right, anything else from the comic that people feel like they need to bring up? Something I did want to mention real quick is I enjoyed the essay or the extended mm-hmm. information at the end of the first issue. And I like the quote from George Lucas that talks about going to the movies for an emotional experience. And I felt like that really summarized what Star Wars is for most fans. This story just hits on a really deep emotional level. And even back then, like across the comic, the novel, the movie, the basic story really just hits that emotional point home. So I really liked that. One other thing I appreciate, it's just a little tiny joke, but I had to chuckle when Owen tells 3PO to shut up and he says, shutting up, sir. So that just gave me a little chuckle. That was a funny little C-3PO side that I appreciated. Yeah. One last thing. In both the novel and the comic, Chewie gets the medal. Yeah, yes. yeah, though, yeah. Yes. I, I meant to bring that up. Yes. yes. The comic yeah. says that it's because she couldn't reach up to give him the medal, but he would get it later. Yes. And I was like, oh, people were already complaining about that. And so they felt the need to put that in there in the end. I forgot that it was in the novelization. For some reason, I don't have a note about it in the novelization, but I did see that in the comic. Chewie gets his due. His, his Dewey. Although it's ridiculous to say she couldn't reach up because he could bow his head down. I mean, right, there's no like, reason. That she he... could have handed it to him. He could put it on himself or something. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, uh, I meant to say, because, you know, I also want to let people know where they can find these things we're talking about. There are a lot of ways you can find these comics. Juliet went to her library and found them. 
Marvel Unlimited is a website that has a lot of Marvel comics. It's basically like a Marvel library online that you pay a set fee, and you can read any of the comics on there. And of course, Comixology has various reprints of, I mean, this has been reprinted multiple times, so there's lots of ways to get it and get your own copy of it or to browse it in various ways. So if you're interested in reading these comics, then just check out any of those ways. And I'll probably put some links in the show notes to some of the ones that are easy to find. So, uh, yeah, so, but is it worth people's time to check out the comic? Um, let's start with you, Juliet. I would say, yeah, it's enjoyable. It, if you enjoy comics and graphic novels, go for it. it. It's a nice supplement that that I think, again, I think it brings the highlights of the books without dragging you down like the book did. So, it's fun. I, again, if nothing else, to see Obi-Wan's death panel. Wow. Oh, yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to say when you mentioned that, is that they actually showed his robe cut in half, too, and, like, later's looking at both pieces, and I was like, that's the one thing in the movie I wish they had done, because it's like, they just make it seem like he barely nudges him with the lightsaber, and he just crumples, and I like the idea that he actually slashed through him, and the two pieces of robe just dropped down with no Obi-Wan in them, and I thought that would have been a cooler thing than if they had done that in the movie. It is just so crazy. Yeah. Joe. Uh, much like the novel, I don't think it's necessary to read this unless you want to look at some uh, art, you know, some interpretations. That panel is great to see the Jabba the Hutt uh, mock one is interesting. And also, I figure if you like want to read, I know this this uh, series continues um, and goes in different places. So if like. It'd be weird to just jump to issue seven. So go ahead and read them if you're going to read the the comics. So, but uh, I don't think it. Yeah, it's necessary. I do would say if you're going to read one, read this over the novelization because it's quicker. It's way faster to get through <laughs> to get the extra stuff. Okay, and Ashley. Yeah, I would recommend checking it out if you're interested in seeing some. Uh, retelling of the story that was contemporary to when the movie came out, especially if you're kind of new to comics. I am just kind of in a place where I'm starting to get into comics as a geek and learning more about it. So it was really interesting to me to see some early comics and how that added to Star Wars. So yeah, I would say if you're interested, it's worth checking out. All right, and Corey? I'm gonna go against the trend here and be like, nah, I don't, I don't think the comic adaptation adds anything new or different that the novelization didn't already do and considering the novelization came out you know like several months prior to it i I think as both a a a reader and a comic reader i think you get more out of the novelization in terms of characterization of characters which is what i think most people are interested in star wars for are the characters you get i think you get a better grasp on who they are and their motivations in the novelization compared to the comics and as we mentioned like the comics ruins some of the jokes it doesn't emphasize enough it tells you too much while not really telling you anything in a lot of places so yeah i would i would maybe do either or but i would lean more towards the novelization as opposed to the comic yeah it's funny uh, how this breaks out because i i agree with you on this one Corey. I, I don't think either one is necessary, and I don't think that you're getting a whole lot more from them. But my point of view is more of if you're going to check out one or the other, you would go with the one that's more different. 
And for me, the novelization is the one that both adds the most material and also is the most different from the theatrical presentation. And so from that standpoint, so if you're interested in just reading about other interpretations of that story, I think that that's where you're going to get more bang for your buck. I mean, the comic is definitely quicker to read six issues of a comic. So if you just want speed and there are some things in there that aren't in the movie that are in the novelization. And so you get that kind of stuff. But to me, I think from a, if you're just looking for that context of what people might have gotten out of the Star Wars story, I think that the novelization gives you more of that. So yeah, I mean, that's that's it. I'm sorry, guys, this went longer than I thought it was going to. I think we got three episodes worth instead of two. But I think that that's all good, and that's going to help us the next time. And next time when we do a movie, and we do like the novelization, the comics, we won't have the introductions ahead of time also, so that's going to make that a lot easier. But now we have kind of a clue for how this flows. So next time, we're going to talk about issues 7 through 23. So... Of course, obviously, this was a success for Marvel, so they decided that, hey, instead of just adapting this movie, we're going to do original Star Wars stories, and this is actually the first piece of expanded media, is this Star Wars comic. They also did a strip in a magazine, like Marvel was publishing a magazine called Pizzazz Magazine, that did two strips, and those are The Keeper's World and The Kingdom of Ice. So we're going to review those next time in addition to those issues of the comic. And again, I'm going to put links in the show notes to places that people can look at these. I mean, I- I'm sorry. I, don't, I mean, I, all the ones that I'm going to post are going to be legal. <laughs> so you're going to have to spend some money. But just so you know, some people may know ways of viewing them for free. If you can't find them at your local library. So, you know, Google is your friend. Suspicious love. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so just want to put that out there for people who want to follow along with us. But yeah, guys, it's been a lot of fun talking about Star Wars with you. And so, yeah, just everybody uh, give your sign outs. Goodbye, everybody. We're all fine here. Thanks. May the force be with you. Can't wait to talk more Star Wars in future episodes. And may the force be with you and help me find a better sign out. You've been listening to Legendary Forces, a part of the 42Cast family of podcasts. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Let's Start the Show by Ben Gibbs. Check out more of his work at bgibbs.com. Thank you for listening and may the force be with you.